I think for patients, it's important to have a jump off point. So your physician talks to you about something, but they also have content on Instagram or wherever they have content that you can go to, whether it's the physician or the clinic, where you can go to as your uh, foray into whatever rabbit hole you want to dive deep. So the goal should be, I don't want you to start your internet search on someone else's or someplace else and then go into a rabbit hole that I don't want you to go down because it's not the right rabbit hole for you. I'd rather you come to my domain and then start your journey there. More and more, you can find doctors and other healthcare professionals talking about their expertise areas on social media, whether that's answering questions on an Instagram Live or adding a medical twist to the latest TikTok dance trend. To learn more about why doctors and health professionals are increasingly moving to social platforms, I talked to Dr. Kenan Omertog, a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist in the Washington University at St. Louis Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of OBGYN, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's HealthCast. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Kenan Omertog from the Washington University in St. Louis Department of OBGYN to the Women's HealthCast today. Thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here. Thanks, Jackie. We're going to get to talking about social media as a health communications tool in a little bit, but before we move into that, tell me a little bit about your day job, what your clinical and academic roles look like. Yeah, so I'm a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist. So what that is, is I'm a board certified OBGYN. I spent four years in residency um, learning to do obstetrics and gynecology and then did an additional three years to subspecialize in reproductive endocrine and infertility, which is basically um, uh, what I tell people is I'm a fertility specialist. I do. I help people get pregnant. I help preserve fertility. I counsel patients on egg freezing. Um, we help uh, patients who have, uh, you know, who need IVF, um, etc. So that's my day job. Um, I am a clinical educator in my academic role, which means I spend most of my time seeing patients, um, but have some additional time carved out to educate uh, medical students, uh, residents, and fellows. So that's my day job. (laughs) It's complex. There's a lot, there's a lot to it, but primarily I'm a clinician. Well, I think we're going to talk a little bit kind of about your off hours job in this too. So we're here today to talk about, um, medical professionals, including physicians, increasingly kind of using social media as a communications tool. And um, so what is your social media presence like? Where can people find you? So I'm on Instagram at Dr. Dr. Kenanomertag, MD. So that's Dr. Kenanomertag, MD on Instagram. And that is where my patients are. Um, And that's what I found um, is where most patient education happens. Um, as it relates to fertility care. Um, I really believe that as a reproductive endocrinologist, as a fertility specialist, we have a duty to educate the masses because there's a, we have not done a good job of educating society about reproduction in this country over the la- at least during my lifetime, and I'm 39 years old. And I've seen all the false starts and all the you know, attempts to try to do sexual education, reproductive health, and they're all pretty bad in general. So 
for the most part. Um, so what we're trying to do is make play catch up. So reproductive endocrinologists, I think, have a great opportunity to educate people on optimizing natural fertility, along with all the assisted reproductive technologies that we are familiar with. I mean, and social media presents an excellent platform to do that. Yeah, so I wanted to ask what motivated you to create this presence, but it sounds like kind of filling a knowledge gap or an information gap. Yeah, it also kind of goes back actually to a little bit further. Um, it's really the social the social network movie kind of prompted me to say, hey, there's an there's some academic questions to be asked here. How many fertility clinics are actually using social media right now? In fact, how many are you know? In 2005, there was data looking at how many clinics were using a website. So I said, look, it's 2010, let's update this and let's figure out how many are actually using social media. At that time, very few were, about a third were using Facebook, um, Twitter, YouTube um, to create content, but it was all really, you know, people were still didn't know what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So myself and Dr. Jimenez, Patricia, who was my co-fellow at the time, we, st we did this paper um, looking at the use of uh, social media and fertility clinics. And then I just decided to carve that out as a niche for myself in academia. So I've since published papers about how social media is used and given talks internationally about how we use social media. So that's how it became my thing. And that's kind of how it started. So would you say um, communicating with patients is kind of your primary audience? Yes. Now, what's interesting is on Instagram, it's mostly targeted for patients. But you know, like, hey, here's a pamphlet. Here's how IVF works. Here's something about, I don't, I can just create the content and put it there and direct people there. Um, and then they can share it. And then it also builds your individual brand, um, which, you know, I think is important as the world gets flatter. Then that serves some purpose because we're also seeing learners on Instagram. We're seeing medical students and residents interact with us and find us on Instagram uh, it's more, it, it serves, the platform can serve as a professional connection tool. It can also s serve as a recruitment tool. And I think that's what's going to become important if it's not already. And this last recruitment cycle showed us that. But again, a lot of reproductive health is visual and a lot of women um, are on Instagram looking for information um, so it's turning into a, Instagram is turning into the OBGYN social plat, social media platform of choice. You mentioned briefly, um, you know, kind of thinking about these tools as a way of building almost a professional brand. We're going to say that kind of lightly, I guess. Um, so you'll be joining our department in April for a faculty development workshop about finding efficiency and improving patient communication in the digital age. And I'm, I'm wondering, and it sounds like you're many times published kind of on this topic, um, what are some of the, the trends that you're seeing in social media use for physicians and health professionals right now? Yeah, so I've been on it, I've been using them for using it for a decade. Uh, now, so what I've seen is in the beginning, people didn't really know how to use it. People weren't really comfortable showing out, if you will, because think about it. I'm an older millennial, if you will. Um, so I didn't really feel comfortable. So I have some Gen X tendencies, right? I don't really care about telling people what I'm doing. Um, but over time, it became obvious that there might be some benefit to doing that. 
Um, and spe- specifically because of the knowledge that I have as a reproductive endocrinologist that a lot of people want. Um, and it also crossed over in what I was doing because the same content I would deliver to the medical students, residents, and fellows was the same content I could deliver to the patient. So I could actually deliver the same content to a broad audience of learners and patients, which is, hard, which is not typical. Like if you're going to talk to residents about hypertension, you're probably going to talk to them a little bit differently than you would a patient. Um, but a lot of what we do is so instructional that I felt like, you know, this is why the platform should be used, can be used for education. Um, so I'm seeing more and more of my peers doing the same thing. And we've kind of all kind of um, supported each other in this. It's a very collegial effort. Um, and now I'm seeing with COVID, you're starting to see programs rely on this kind of ethos of we need to put our brand out there. We need to highlight the individuals that are in our program that are using these tools. We actually need to, you know, take advantage of the people that in our institution that have experience with these tools to teach us how to better leverage these tools to recruit uh, people um, to the program. And ultimately, the key is authenticity. So that's that's one thing that you have to keep in mind as you move through this, as we evolve in our use of these tools. The one common constant is always be authentic. In the beginning, it was like, wow, look at this beautiful life and this beautiful picture. But now we're like, man, I don't want to see all that because we know that's not real. Now we want to see what authenticity. And I think physicians have a really good opportunity to give that if you're comfortable being a little vulnerable. And I think, again, whether, you're t- whether it's talking about um, systemic racism, whether it's talking about transphobia, homophobia, racism in general, these are a, lot of, a lot of people are not comfortable having these conversations, but I think these tools provide a platform for people to reflect on themselves and actually share how they're feeling to become part of the conversation uh, moving forward. As you built your platforms and um, spent more time in this space, how did you start to feel more comfortable approaching some of those conversations? Um, Honestly, I just was like, so let's just take the educational topics, right? So I like to write and kind of in, I learned how to be honest about certain things like, hey, let's talk about faith and fertility, let me talk about it from the perspective of someone who hears these conversations all the time because that will benefit other people. I'm not naming names. I'm not, you know, obviously, you know, violating any privacy laws. Um, I'm just sharing these general themes that we know everybody has questions about. So that can that brings people in, um, number one. Uh, number two, I do a lot with LGBTQ education. I'm an LGBTQ ally here at WashU. Um, so I think it's important for people to recognize that and to normalize these conversations about using inclusive language, um, talking about um, opportunities for same-sex couples, talking about fert- preconception counseling and fertility preservation for um, our transgender citizens, non-binary folks. I mean, that's really, um, I just became comfortable talking about it because I 
taught myself to be comfortable talking about in the office because we see patients who are, you know, again, this is not an infertility clinic. It's a fertility clinic. You, you don't just take care of, you know, um, one group of people. I mean, you're taking care of a broad group of, of folks who have preconception and reproductive needs. So I just said, oh, this is what I talk about every day. Why don't I talk about it here? If you had to guess, how much time do you spend in a week or a month or so um, developing content for your social media platforms? It varies. There was a paper, there was a little, uh, six, seven years ago, um, ACOG put out a little pamphlet, and I think they estimated like one to six hours a week, or six hours a week was what was needed to do social media. Now it's a lot more sophisticated because you, you have, I have colleagues who make TikTok videos and once you get good at those, having dabbled a little bit, like I can't, I can't do it. Like no one needs to see me doing dance moves. I mean, I love to dance, but no one needs to see me doing dance moves to like choreographed uh, TikTok educationals. I got, that, I got a different thing. Um, but shout out to the people that do it and do it well. But once you get good at the platform, you can make content in 15 minutes um, if you know what you're going to talk about. I probably spend about that. I mean, there were times where I would spend an hour per post, feed post. I do a lot of Instagram stories now, which is a little more, uh, which is quicker. And now I like to do Instagram live. Uh, with colleagues who are on and just say, hey, let's talk about like this week, we're going to talk about, you know, we're going to talk about endometriosis. Um, and that's also a good way for me to connect with friends um, and colleagues. So that's why I like those. That's why I like the platform. It's pretty versatile. We've talked a little bit about what social media use looks like for health professionals, but um, I I tend to approach things from uh, like a patient perspective, because that's kind of... Mm-hmm more how I engage with healthcare. Um, and so from, from the perspective of patients or healthcare consumers, what's the value for us to have physicians, whether there are physicians or just like experts in health fields, being more visible and more accessible on social media? I think for patients, it's important to have a jump off point. So your physician talks to you about something, but they also have content on Instagram or wherever they have content that you can go to whether it's the physician or the clinic, where you can go to as your uh, foray into whatever rabbit hole you want to dive deep. So the goal should be, I don't want you to start your internet search on someone else's or someplace else and then go into a rabbit hole that I don't want you to go down because it's not the right rabbit hole for you. I'd rather you come to my domain and then start your journey there. Um, Because I'd like to think, you know, as a board certified reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist, that my content can be trusted perhaps better than someone who's not a board certified reproductive endocrinologist or who's, you know, out here maybe providing content that might take advantage of what essentially is a very vulnerable population who's looking for answers. So I'd like to think I'm a gatekeeper, but not in the pejorative, um, more in the kind of, you know, altruistic sense. That trust point, and um, I think that's so important. So something I really wanted to ask you uh, is, you know, how we as 
healthcare consumers can evaluate what health information is being shared on social media and whether it's safe or accurate. Because I think ultimately, you know, having the credentials behind your name might not. Yeah, it might not necessarily mean what you think it means. Um, I think it's it's difficult. I mean, how do you know that the, you know, every legal, every attorney lawyer has, you know, a billboard is not a, uh, you know, advertising is not a reason to hire an attorney, do your due diligence, blah, blah, blah. There's all this, there's these disclaimers in the uh, legal field. Um, You know, it's tricky. I think the, the best advice I give to patients is, you know, obviously start with the people you trust. And that might be, you know, here in St. Louis, that might be individual physicians, that might be the institution itself. Um, Same there in Madison, it could be the same thing. Um, That's, I think, what you want is you want people to start with your trusted brand. And here it's WashU and there it's, you know, the university and the School of Medicine. So that's why it's a good idea to take advantage of the brand that you already have. So I do follow a ton of doctors on social media, um, including you. And sweet. Yeah, and I see I see this reminder a lot, especially you know doing a Q and A or something like that. That uh, physicians over social media can't provide specific oh, yeah. medical advice via yeah. direct messages, or and you know obviously seek advice from your own healthcare teams. Um, what do you think are the appropriate boundaries for people who are interacting with physicians, whether they're their own doctors or someone else um, over social media? Well, there are a couple of things. First of all, I've had current patients reach out to me on social media with specific questions. And I immediately say, hey, look, I acknowledge the question. And I say, you got to send a message in the morning through the p- patient portal, my chart. Uh, that is what we use, which I know is what you guys use. Uh, because I can't I mean, I got email, I got Instagram direct message, I got Facebook Messenger, I got my chart messages, I got regular mail. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I got all these ways that people can get a hold of me, but I only have one way to ensure confidential, accurate, timely patient responses, and that's through my chart. I've also gotten random people that just send me their, you know, IVF history and they're like, do you think this is a good idea? What should I be doing? Am I missing something? And I approach those from the standpoint of education. So I provide education to them. I don't provide medical advice. So I'll say I am not this is not, first of all, I'll say you should talk to your doctor. These are very complex issues that you're describing. Um, I try to approach it from that standpoint and say, look, I, I re- there's a lot you, I mean, there's a lot going on here. I think your prognosis is ultimately fine, but you should really talk to your doctor. And I, I mean, I've never had a patient who's like, well, I demand answers from you. I mean, they're always like, thank you so much for responding. They just, people just want to be acknowledged. So I think just acknowledging that. So the advice there is respond, but don't provide medical advice. Um, yeah, I think that's the key is education is different than medical advice. So I can talk about people who have infertility and the approach to unexplained infertility and how you do three cycles of one thing and then you move on to IVF and the role of pre-implantation genetic testing in IVF and transferring one embryo versus two, freezing embryos, Why what, considerations for one approach versus the other. But when people start then in the comments asking, well, I did this, I did that, that's when you got it. That's if you start addressing each situation, that's where it can get tricky. 
What's one thing that you wish more physicians and medical professionals knew about kind of using social media as a health communications tool? Um, I think that it's just it's constantly changing and it's exhausting. So just pick a platform and stick with it. If you're a creator and you're a professional creator, you can't really stick to one platform. But if you're just out here trying to create some content for a small audience and maybe just have some do something on the fun side um, that can also benefit you professionally and the audience that you serve, i.e. patients in this setting, or, uh, or physicians or learners, um, then pick one platform and stick with it and get good at it. The other thing is know your audience. I mean, I know most of my patients are millennials on, and millennials largely use Instagram. Um, if you're talking about, if you're a pediatric adolescent gynecologist talking about STDs and endometriosis in 16-year-olds, you might want to be on TikTok because that's where all the teenagers are. Um, so you actually need to know your audience. I mean, honestly, if I were going to talk about, I mean, Facebook is an older platform for all intents and purposes, like Gen X is usually there. You know, that's kind of what it's become. Boomers are there. You know, I, I grew up with it. So that's generally what I use because it's the most familiar to me. But if they're like, yeah, you know, I'm doing, I, you know, I'm, I'm a physician scientist. I want to build um, networking and it sucks because I can't go to these meetings right now because the institution won't let me or whatever. You know, um, I would say go on Twitter. I'm excited for your faculty development workshop. You're going to come teach our faculty in a couple weeks. Um, are you going to cover anything beyond using social media as a communications tool? This is going to be fun. I really look forward to this faculty development workshop because what we're going to be doing is while we're, we've been talking about social media here, um, that's only half of what we're going to be talking about at the faculty development uh, workshop that we're doing in April. Um, what we're going to be doing there is talking also about communicating with patients uh, through the electronic medical record, um, talking about, you know, a lot of communication is not over the phone anymore. It's uh, digital, you know, written communication back and forth. And sometimes things get lost in the syntax when you write things. This is different than what people hear. Um, so you lose a lot of the cues that people typically have. Um, when they're having a face-to-face -face conversation or uh, audio, you know, conversation. So we're going to be talking about all these things. I think there will be a lot to benefit the physicians in the Department of OBGYN there. Um, so I look forward to it. I've been speaking with Dr. Kenan Omertog from the WashU uh, Department of OBGYN. Um, I am also really looking forward to your faculty development seminar in April for our UW Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. But thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Of course. Thanks, Jackie, for having me. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing, rate and review us in your podcast app, and let us know what health issues you'd like to learn about at the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening.